Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Wednesday the 17th of January. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. Because the man who handed me my Emmy um, mispronounced my name and so I thought that they should have given him lessons in how to say Fenula Flanagan. The buzz, there has to be sexual chemistry. There has to be that chemistry. If it's not there, you can't make it, by the way, folks. Sorry for those who are getting on really well, but there's no chemistry, forget it. I yes. have never actually tried it myself. If I've done it, it's been unintentionally, but I've never actually set out and been like, I'm going to try go the months without drinking. It's mostly that like, I'm not really bothered to go out and I just do it anyways without actually intentionally making an effort to do it. Dating apps, are they worthwhile when you're looking for love and companionship? Claire Byrne was joined by Dr. Harry Barry, GP and mental health specialist, and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven from the Department of Psychology at the University of Limerick to discuss. Dating Harry has changed a lot in the last decade, maybe 15 years, because people can meet those people who they would never have had an opportunity to make contact with in the past. And it is technology that has transformed how people yeah, date. You know, you know, like it, like it or not, and I have to say I belong to one of the people that probably I'm not really all that. I belong to a different generation. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and disclaimer, I'm not using dating apps. So. <laughs> good to get uh, that in there. Good to get that I'm in not either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Marie, you better to say I'm not. You do. You yeah. do. You're not yeah. choosing yeah. them either. No, though someone okay. did sign me up to a, a website called Christian Mingle, specialising in uh, faith-based matching. Okay. So it took me a while to get out of that spam. And yeah. Yes, stop yeah. all the emails coming. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's, no, there's no doubt, Claire, that uh, there has been a sea change and certainly COVID remote working is, is adding to all this and the stress and the pressures of modern life. But I think the arrival of the smartphone has really transformed it all. Uh, and in the old days, we used to meet through, you know, discos and parties and workplaces and all the rest of it. Uh, nowadays, I think because everything is so dissipated, uh, I think we're, there's more and more emphasis on, on downloading these apps and start swiping. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Which is You see, Amory, you, know, you mightn't be a user, but I'm sure you know people mm-hmm. who have met using dating apps and have had a very successful I do. life afterwards. So I'm not going to name them, but congratulations. And I hope all is well with the baby. Um, yeah, so absolutely. You know, we often think of apps as maybe something where you'd only meet someone casually, but certainly some relationships do do arise out of that, just as they would from meeting people in any other context. And I suppose even 15 years ago, it was uncommon to meet someone online. I remember the first time someone told me they were getting married to someone they had met online. And I remember thinking that is just so unusual, but it's far less unusual now. And I suppose people coming up, uh, the generation behind me won't think anything of it. It's just an extra way to meet people in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's so popular, isn't it? It really is so popular. So it's almost, I remember when Tinder, for example, first came out, it was interesting. It was new. People were getting set up on it and there didn't seem to be a stigma attached to it, but it wasn't necessarily something everybody was on. But they're far more popular and they have so many users now. And I thought it was really interesting that Tinder themselves uh, indicated that just after most of the world began lockdown during COVID, they had more than three billion swipes that day. Everybody seemed to move to an app just mm. during that time where their opportunities for other connection were more limited. Can we talk a little, Harry, about the advantages then, as you see it, of these apps? And um, bearing in mind now with the proviso that you, I yes, think, prefer yes, face-to-face yes, yes, meetings. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very old-fashioned like that. But I think, really, you know, firstly, they're very convenient. I, I, I can't argue with that. Uh, you know, 
they, they cut out so much of the normal having hassle of having to go to all these different areas to try to meet people. Secondly, and this is a big, big, big one, they're, they definitely expose us to a much greater pool of people. Mm. And numbers really matter. The, the greater the number of people, the greater the chances, do you know what I mean, that you might find the person of your dreams. They're faster. They definitely is, is, is a very fast way of doing it. Uh, for lots of people who are shy or introverted, etc., they're anonymous. That has pluses and that has minuses. But for lots of people, it's a huge plus. They're very versatile in that they match up our personalities a, a lot better. We can narrow our options down. But for me, really, the one that probably screams out is that they're successful. Mm-hmm. They actually work. So that to me is the golden rule. Uh, I don't care what you do in life. Does it work? That's my favourite statement. Uh, and it is important, for example, a research thing in America in 2023 showed that one in 10, this is a very interesting statistic, I think, one in 10 people who were in what we call a serious relationship, married, long-term relationship, etc., uh, had met through these dating apps. And under the age of 30, it was down to one in five. Ah, OK, so, so it's changing it really how, is how people meet. It is, it, it really does. I'd love to know, and, I, and I, I don't think there's a huge amount of evidence, Anne-Marie, for this, but you might uh, tell us if there is. Has it changed how people behave? So groups who are going out with their friends to the pub, before the dating apps, they might have been more inclined to try and meet somebody in the pub by having a chat with those outside of their friend circle. But now they can meet people on apps, so maybe they don't bother doing that. Yeah, and I don't think we have direct evidence for that, but certainly as technology has accelerated and people use it more, the more time we spend on apps or communicating online, the less time we have to spend with people in our real life social circle. And I suppose when you're out and about meeting new people through friends, there isn't necessarily the same degree of interest when you can meet people in other ways as well. So we're hard pressed to find direct evidence for um, what you say about the dating apps, but certainly how we interact with technology definitely shapes how we interact with people in in, in other contexts. Yes, in general. Yeah. Terms. And sometimes it might be that you've met somebody on an app and it supports you meeting them more in person as well. Or you might meet someone in person and see them on an app later. So I used to think of these things as different strands, I suppose, of interaction. So the real life and then the online. But more and more as people are growing up with technology, those layers are not really so distinct. It's more blurry and it's not even specific to dating apps. You might have um, a running app where you post your running, for example. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see someone running the same route and you see them on the app as well. So those lines are becoming blurry between what's an online connection, and what's a real world one. I wonder, should we be concerned, Harry, that we're becoming less tolerant? Like if you can get rid of somebody by swiping in a certain direction, yep. does that follow through to how we behave in real life? Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. To me, uh, it, we really need to look at the disadvantages of, of these apps. Do you know what I mean? Because they're, they're there, but we need to look at them. Uh, and I think one of that, that one is one of them. I, I call that increase in superficiality. Uh, in other words, uh, I'm just going to kind of decide based on your looks. By the way, your looks may be a false profile, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But I'm going to decide on that. And is that the way to really meet somebody long term? I, I have my question mark. I think we have to look at this thing of huge dating app fatigue. There's exhaustion out there. People are swiping, 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 swiping. They're spending up to six hours a week and they're checking five times a day. They're going through multiple partners. They're, they're going on multiple dates. They're getting exhausted by the whole thing. And, mm-hmm. and many of them are getting very um, um, disillusioned with them. Uh, and I also think that the, this one actually is the one really that stood out to me in, the, in, in all of this discussion, this lack of authenticity. 
how do we know that what we're actually seeing is actually what we're getting? And I, this was a very interesting one for me, that in one large study, 30% of users were either married and another 18% were in long-term relationships. Mm. So that is totally distorting the whole, uh, you know, focus because there are lots and lots of people who want genuinely to meet somebody uh, for a long-term relationship. Now, there are obviously people who are just hooking up for, for uh, shall we say, sex, etc. Uh, but there are definitely lots and lots of people who really genuinely want to meet. Uh, and definitely the newer apps like Hinge, for example, which gives you a little bit more possibility of adding a little bit more information and where you're given far fewer choices seems to be slightly more successful. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. interesting Just that the, the people who own Tinder bought up uh, hinge. hinge because it's a fast growing up in Ireland. Just going back to what you said there about people being married and being in relationships, like we've always had bad actors out on the dating scene. That's not new. I, I, I couldn't agree more with you, but I was shocked at that figure. Do you know what I mean? I, I have to say, in a, uh, and I, I, I was looking, I was trying to look into it to see, you know, what are the reasons? Do you know what I mean? Because the automatic assumption is they're all looking for sex. Do you know what I mean? But actually, no, uh, a lot of them were lonely. A lot of them were looking just to make friends with people. Uh, a lot of them were looking, it's kind of like they're, they're, in, they're in relationships they're not really fulfilled with, you know what I mean? And it's like as if they want to see, am I still attractive out mm -hmm. there? Do you know? so Ver looking for verification. Yeah, I think all those things. You Listen, know. I, I'm getting uh, messages from people who are very much defending these apps. Um, I met my future wife 11 years ago online from Canada. We now have two adorable children. It certainly worked for us, that listener's from Limerick. I'm 61. I met my partner on Tinder two and a half years ago. It was the best thing I ever did, but I have to say, you have to kiss a lot of frogs first. <laughs> and a word of advice from this listener from um, for men. Get your sister or a female friend to take your photographs. Yes. Because most men have terrible photographs up, so it's very hard to see what they actually look like. I think I, that's a great tip because it's really nice to hear from people who've had success from the apps and certainly people do. Um, I think sometimes people, when they go on an app, they expect automatic success, right? Whereas if you meet a partner by chance and you weren't looking to meet them out in the real world, uh, you... You, that's just a bonus, right? But because the app nearly sells you this idea that you'll meet someone, that's what you expect. But certainly uh, having a friend absolutely go over a profile is a great idea. And some apps used to be based actually on people recommending their friends, which mm -hmm. I thought was really nice as well. Yeah, Someone else says that they met on Grindr five and a half years ago. We're still going strong. And the advice they gave is skip the chat and organise a date ASAP. I absolutely. think you'd agree with that, I, Harry. I, you're, I, I'm putting up my hand and say I'm nearly cheering to that person. Well done. Because that that to me is the key. You cannot assess a person. There's You cannot assess the chemistry, for example, or the communication uh, online. You cannot do it. So meet the person as fast as you possibly can. If it's a genuine, if you think you're genuinely interested, because only through a straightforward face to face, the power of connection, that one to one. Look, there's either buzz or it's not. The, the three things in a relationship there three critical things and could I get this message out there for relationships that so many of them are just rolling along do you know what I mean there's three critical things for a good long term relationship the buzz there has to be sexual chemistry there has to be that chemistry if it's not there you can't make it by the way folks sorry for those who are getting on really well but there's no chemistry forget it secondly good communication there has to be that ability to communicate well and thirdly, the one that everyone forgets, it's timing. Mm -hmm. Because for so many people, everything else is right. 
but the timing is wrong. It may be, the, may be different ages, maybe looking for different things. Maybe one wants a long term relationship, one wants a short term relationship. Maybe one wants to go to Australia and the other wants to go to America. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the, all those factors, unfortunately, decide. So, so you can't decide those really online. You've got to meet the You've person. You've got to meet the person. Do you agree, Anne-Marie, or are we back to now dating app exhaustion here again if we're meeting all these people for coffee dates? Yeah, you know, I think it's a good idea to meet online. You'll know pretty quickly, I suppose, if there's something there or not. Of course, it might be a bit odd to approach somebody and be like, do you want to meet up? Not everyone, some other people might be a bit more cautious and be like, well, I need to know a little bit more about you before I do that. But I think it's really good advice. I would say as well, though, um, if people are using apps, you don't have to give up the real world as well because it would be such a shame to miss out on an amazing partner because you're buried in the apps. People still often meet people through friends of friends or through clubs or whatever activities they're doing or through work or friends of people through work and so on. So that real world is still there and the advantages are that the person is not that far away from you as well. So I definitely wouldn't give up on the real world even as people engage with the apps. And I know Harry you agree with that but it is really important isn't it to mix both. You have to mix both you get the best, you know, shall we say, pool of people. And this is a very interesting piece of information that there is some evidence that shows that people who meet offline, not through dating apps, that the relationships are more solid, people are happier in the relationships and more likely to be long-term successful. I don't know now if our mm, listeners would agree with that. A lot, of, a lot of people would disagree who've met like that. Yes. Well, I that, have that a, is here, the here's other. a celebrant now who's been yeah. in touch with us. The majority of couples that I have married to date have met on a dating app. They well, I, I think that's fantastic. Well, I mean, to be honest, really, uh, uh, if it works for you, I think it's fantastic. As far as I'm concerned, a dating app is simply a way. It's like going down, like going to a party or a disco and you meet somebody and, 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 you, and you want to kind of move on. It's just a way of putting you in contact with yes. people. As long as you see it as that, do you know what I mean? Then it will be fine. Mm-hmm. Dr. Harry Barry and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven on Today with Claire Byrne. Well, if you are on the dating scene and you think you need a bit of Dutch courage, then dry January probably isn't for you. And on the Ray Darcy show, they were talking about ditching the booze for the month. And reporter Sinead Ulechoin went out to gauge people's reaction to taking part. Dry January, I haven't done it in the past. I've tried a few years in a row, but January is the time of year when there's not much happening. It's quiet. You're strapped for cash. Your body, I suppose, isn't as healthy as it was perhaps uh, during the year because of all the food that has been consumed at Christmas time and the drink as well. So I did try it a few years, but I was a little bit hard on myself because it wasn't that I was just trying to do dry January, but I was trying to go to the gym. I was trying to cut out chocolate. I was trying to cut out sugar. And I think I had too much on my plate. Mm. So I've never been successful. But I have been successful doing a dry month. Uh So last year, um, after my birthday in March, I decided that I'd try and give up the drink for a little while. So I lasted for, I would say, about a month, in and around a month. So I went out the night of the 3rd of March, my birthday is the 4th, and I woke up on the 4th and I just felt a little bit weak, uh, unhappy, unhealthy I had a pain in my head and I thought to myself look don't carry on like this so I did it for about three weeks or so and I was successful and it was really gradually that I 
included or brought alcohol back into my life again. A lot had to do with social settings and meeting friends and things can I ask you, around Can drink. I ask you, did you appreciate any of the pluses of not drinking while you were off it? I did. I had more money. I felt healthier. Mm. I felt smog in the mornings waking <laughs> up and feeling like um, like I was fresher than I would have been had I been drinking mm. I felt like I had more energy my skin was better um, January is a month as I was saying after December and after eating everything around you my skin is in bits at the moment so I'm half considering dry January as well yeah. but I did feel better more money in my pocket that smugness and just an overall healthier feeling okay. but more energy Right, now your job today was to, to go out there and see what people were talking about and if they'd done it and would they do it and what did you find? Well I met Ray first and uh, he was reflecting on the month of December and how it's perhaps a good time the start of the new year to focus on dry January We all do a little bit more than we should over the Christmas so why not take a break one month of the year have you ever tried it? Not deliberately. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've gone a month. Probably builds up your enjoyment for February. <laughs> you get into a rut where you're, you're drinking for the sake of drinking. But if you give it up for a month, then when the month's up, you're almost forgetting that you wanted a drink and you might even stretch it out an extra week. Is a lot of what we do wrapped up with drinking when it comes to socialising? Uh, not as much as it used to be. The younger generation and the older generation, that middle generation, my age, 30, 40, 50, probably don't socialise as much in pubs like we used to, that kind of thing. Definitely a lot of the people that have come into Ireland don't generally drink in pubs. I, I know up by me in Town, all the pubs are closed by one hotel because nobody goes to the pubs anymore. Yeah, so that's Ray there. Mm. I met uh, Mary as well. Mary doesn't drink, but she had an interesting insight. Dry January doesn't really affect me because I'm not a drinker and neither is my husband. So dry January is probably more about uh, cutting back a few calories rather than any of the alcohol. I suppose I admire people who, who do it because obviously people like a drink and I know life is stressful and some people like the glass of wine or the few pints at the weekend and probably people when they socialise in a pub might find it difficult but I know a lot of people who don't drink in January so I think if it's for you good for you if not no judgment non-judgmental Mary yeah it's a good way to be mm. <laughs> Layla is 19 I yes. have never actually tried it myself if I've done it it's been unintentionally but I've never actually set out and been like I'm going to try other months without drinking it's mostly that like I'm not really bothered to go out and I just do it anyways without actually intentionally making an effort to do it I would probably go out only on occasions for the likes of birthdays family things but like my family and myself were not big drinkers so we wouldn't really drink at home like some of my friends' families would and stuff like that it could really improve people's not only mental health but physical health too to just do the month after and kind of recover and stuff because after you do go through all this kind of alcohol and stuff your body kind of feels more fatigued and stuff so it would be very nice to put your head down and try go the month later and see how much better you would feel rather than the rest of the year when you have so many occasions to drink for the likes of Paddy's Day and Christmas and you know all the excuses like oh my god it's Christmas we may as well just drink that kind of stuff so I'd say it could improve a lot of people's lives if they actually tried Do hangovers get worse as you get older? 
Now, I'm only 19, so I don't know, but I've had quite the bad few hangovers now since I was younger, because obviously, you know, as you get older and you go mad, I think it just takes a toll on you after time, and especially if you are a big drinker, kind of like a weekend drinker and stuff, week after week after week, as you get older, I don't think your body can actually take it as much as you can when you are, like, my age or something, so, but I even feel that hangers that I've got even last year compared to this year, like, I kind of wake up feeling so much more tired, whereas I wouldn't be hopping out of bed being like, right, I'm tired, but not that I'm not incapable of doing something. I'm thinking I'm stuck in bed now and that's why I don't really like drinking because I hate that feeling so I think hangovers actually do get quite worse How's Layla there? Yeah and it does take its toll it's not just the night that you go out drinking but it's the following day as well and perhaps even the day after And Martin um, he was in the throes of a hangover when you met him I'm after having surgery so I'm having a lot of drink for the last year in fact I went out last night and had 8 points I'm absolutely devastated by this now and do you regret having the pints? No, because I, I wanted to see the friends I haven't seen in three years. Where I, I regret this morning, yeah, I haven't... Yeah, I can't go to work, you know. Describe how you feel. Nausea. Yeah, nausea. Stomach upset. We just have to have a bowl of soup. <laughs> Did it go down easy? Yeah, 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 fairly easy, yeah. Considering how you felt this morning, would you consider giving up the drink for a longer period of time? Yeah, yeah, totally. Actually, give it up totally. Because since I had the surgery during the course of the year, I've only been out four times, and I literally don't miss it. I only went out to be social with the lads last... I hadn't seen them in three years, you know? So, yeah, I was considered totally giving up drink, yeah. Mm-hmm. No problem. Yeah, you know, I, I won't touch a drink now for months you now again, you know. You get too old and you're not used to hangovers then, you know. Just can't take them, you know. And the hangovers sometimes bleed into the next day as well. Well, I couldn't go to work today. Simple. I drive a taxi, so um, it's totally illegal to, to follow a date to drive a taxi, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not only is it impacting your body, but your pocket as well? Correct, yeah. yeah. Financially, yeah, correct. I've lost a day's wages, plus a few bob for the few points last night. I feel his pain, uh, Martin. Yeah. Uh, Sinead, thank you so much for that. Um, did anybody no say problem. they didn't want to comment on their drinking habits? No, everyone was pretty open now with me yesterday evening when I was out and about and um, yeah, very open and it was funny because I did meet a good few people who didn't drink as well. Mm, mm, okay. And I was half expecting it to be, say, 50-50, but I would say it was more maybe 65-35. 65 non-drinkers. Non-drinkers, right. yes. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah interesting. That was Sinead Neulicon getting people's reaction to dry January on the Ray Darcy show. And Ray was joined in studio by Kate Gunn, an author who wrote a book a few years ago called The Accidental Soberista about her experience for giving up drink for a month and then staying off it forever. Um, very interesting. I can definitely relate to the hangovers getting worse uh, as you get older. That definitely uh, rang true for me. But also, um, Sinead said there, you know, she was listing off all the different benefits that she had felt in those three weeks. And yet the draw is so um, hard. It, it pulls you back in, even okay. with all those benefits, you know. And your relationship with drink probably is echoed around the country. You started at 16, getting into pubs with fake ID, probably went, yeah. went to college, drank a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. I had, like I would say, a totally uh, normal relationship with alcohol um, in Ireland. So um, well, this is a normal alcohol relationship with, uh, with alcohol in Ireland. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's what's perceived to be normal in Ireland. Yeah. The cultural norms of the country that mm. we live in, yeah. um, you know, 16 probably would have been quite late <laughs> to, to start. Uh, and yes, with the fake IDs and in the pubs at like early ages. Um, and I drank all through college, through my 20s, when the kids were young, um, never to worry 
worrying levels. Um, it's that grey area drinking or mid lane drinking um, where, you know, you're definitely not an alcoholic. You're definitely not a teetotaler. You're a moderate drinker. Sometimes you drink too much, sometimes not at all. Um, and I would say, you know, probably um, less than a lot of my friends, maybe a bit more than some, uh, but nothing that anyone would ever have Give said. Give us an example of concerned. your average behaviour, say, in your 30s. Um, in my 30s, I had uh, three young kids, yeah. so it would have been at home drinking, um, would have shared a bottle of wine in the evening and um, kind of got into a bad habit of, of maybe like most evenings. Every evening. Uh, I would say five or six <laughs> evenings. Right. So you'd be counting down to the kids in bed, sharing that bottle of wine, having like your own time in the day. Um, but of course, Me time. Me time. Wine time. The, the <laughs> next day, of course, is harder because you've got the alcohol in your system and you're tired and then you're counting down to the next mm. evening. Um, so, yeah, same as same as so many mothers and fathers around yeah. the country, I'd say. But you didn't think you had a problem at all? Um, I didn't think I had a problem. Um, and again, in the cultural norms, I would say I didn't. Uh, but having given up and looking back, it, it seems crazy to me that like I drank that much. And had those hangovers that were like, as I, as I got older, they got so bad, I might spend a whole day in bed uh, on a Saturday. And that might be after two glasses of wine or, um, you know, three quarters of a bottle. It, it would just depend on, on the day. Um, but I could spend a whole day in bed. Um, I would like, you know, have vomiting, be really bad. Uh, but even that, it wouldn't have questioned whether I would give up because that was inconceivable to me. Why inconceivable? Um, because nobody around me uh, didn't drink. Um, I couldn't imagine life without it. I couldn't imagine social situations without it. I'd been drinking since 16. Um, hadn't kind of learned how to be without it. Um, so it was just, yeah, it, it, like the brain did not compute the possibility of giving up until I saw a couple of other people in my life give up. Because mm. I'd say people are listening to going, yeah, I, I just can't imagine life without drink. Mm. Uh, and particularly in this country, uh, because there is that culture. It seems yeah. to be changing slightly, is it? A hundred percent changing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, when I gave up, it, it would have been uh, very unusual. I just did a 30 days and then it continued on. Um, but nowadays it's much more acceptable. Um, you can even see all of the, the alcohol brands are bringing out those non-alcoholic uh, versions. Um, they're not stupid. They're doing it because the demand is there. Okay. Um, and all the stats back that up. Okay. So for people who want to do it, and you, it happened by accident away because it was 30 days. And, and what encouraged you to do more than 30 days? Um, we went into the 30 days. So myself and my partner did it together. So that was a big thing. I had somebody to do it with. Um, and we went into it um, with the view of, OK, what can we do out of this? We signed up to like a, a 10K run, um, focused on the mornings, um, really the benefits of, of what we were going to get out, out of those 30 days rather than, oh, my God, my life's over for 30 days. I'm going to hide away. Um, so those that month was was unexpectedly really good. Um, we saw loads of benefits and we thought, will we try this? We were doing like there was a, a no one year, no beer group. And we thought we'd do the 90 days. And that brought us up through Christmas. I thought, God, if we could do Christmas, we could do anything. So we literally did the th 30 days, 90 days and then 365 days. Um, and after that, there was no going back. And what about all the, the people you mentioned earlier on that all your friends and, and relatives, I suppose, were all drinking mm -hmm. and, and you were going out. And Kate, you have one. What do you have? 
Um, yeah, so I think the message of that was like much easier because it was like, oh, I'm just off it for 30 uh-huh. days. So you weren't like going into this into the pub and going, oh, I don't drink anymore. Right. Um, so it was just a 30 day <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, and then people very quickly just get used to the mm. fact that you're not drinking. And again, all of those non-alcoholic options that are in the pubs these days, um, you don't stand out. You've got a beer in front of you or a fake gin and tonic or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, I was reading an article you wrote back in 2017, so it was still fresh. Mm. Uh, and you were saying things about how people react to you and that maybe they're defensive because mm. you're holding a mirror up to their behaviour. Yeah, I think, I, and, you know, I'll say that I probably was that person before I gave up. So, you know, I would have been um, sat beside a non-drinker at a wedding, say, and be like, oh, my God, rolling my eyes like, you know, this is going to be painful. Um, but it's because you're then nervous about, you know, am I slurring? How am I coming across? Are they judging me? Um, so I've been on both sides. Um, and, you know, as a non-drinker now, uh, absolutely not judging you. You know, I'll I'll... When when it starts to get repetitive and boring, twelve o'clock, I'm usually out of there. Um, but and I've you've seen, the car, and you've got the car. It's <laughs> the joy. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, it's I, I can see why people are defensive. Totally understand that. Yeah, it, it's odd because in all of those, although no really heavy drinkers in that in that those vox pops there, but everybody is aware of the harm the drink is doing to them, hmm. but yet they continue to drink. Yeah, it's that love hate relationship, and I think like if anybody kind of has been having those arguments with themselves or like, you know, I'm only going to drink on a, a Friday and Saturday night. I'm I'm only going to have three drinks if I go out. I'm only going to do And you're making these rules with yourself and you're making those rules with yourself because something's not right or it's starting to kind of take from mm. your life more than it's giving to it. Um, so I think, yeah, not everybody is ready to do the 30 days or, or, or give it up at, at all. But I think if you're starting to question things or you're getting kind of curious about this, movement of, of people giving up uh, then maybe something isn't right in your life and maybe you should try it uh, There's more information now than there would have been mm. 20 years ago about the harmful effects of drink it, that's feeding into it as well isn't it Yeah I don't think that's the motivating factor for most right, okay. people but it definitely is like a huge long term So what, is the, what is the motivating factor then? Um, I think it's the the immediate results, you know, you you the whether you have like a goal in life or or you know some fitness thing you want to tick off or you're feeling you're dragging yourself through the days. Like I felt I was kind of operating at a sixty percent level, and I just thought, oh, that's middle age. Mm. I'm just getting old, and that's that's it. Um, but the the energy that you get back and the sleep and all of the things that that you get back from it are. Phenomenal. It's it's interesting you say that because people who are living their lives and 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 drinking away that that that's their normal. They mm. don't have your version of the world yeah. to compare it to. Yeah. And so I was running at that sixty percent, but had yeah. no idea that I was running at that. I'm 60%. wondering about the language. Even dry January. Ah, oh, it's awful. Yeah, because you're abstaining. You're giving up. Yeah. Sobriety, depriving yourself. Yeah. They're all quite negative terms, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. And I think that switch to the positive has only come in recent years. Um, and what are, what, how do you do the positives? How do I do them? Yeah, but like, how do you sell it? Do you, and I know you're not evangelistic about this, but mm. I'm sure people are curious when they talk to you. 
uh, and they ask you, you know, what are the benefits, Kate? Like, yeah. why, why should I do it? Yeah, like, and so, like some of them were touched on there um, in, in the Vox Pops, but uh, the, the immediate ones for me were the, the amount of energy I had, the productivity, the clarity of mind, um, anxiety reduces, you got more money, your sleep is better. Uh, it's literally like relationships, your like parenting, every aspect right. of life <laughs> yeah. improves. So it's like the crazy thing is, you know, why do we go back to it? Yeah. Well, the buzz, the, the, you know, it gives me in social situations, it disinhibits me. It allows mm. me to be more social. That's, yeah. That's and as a, as an introvert, that was my problem. So I would go, you know, from 16, you know, I, find, I found when we started to go out to the pub, I would find myself uncomfortable in those big groups of people sitting in the pub. So that having that magical elixir that, that gave you confidence and made you comfortable um, was amazing. But then you're you're drinking in every social situation. So mm. you haven't learned to be who you really are in those social situations without it. So that's a that's a learning experience. You have to gain. Right. Your so confidence. how is it then in those situations without drink? So initially awkward. Um, so the first couple of times I did feel awkward. Um, so that was difficult. Um, but it, it's like practice makes perfect. You go through a couple of those experiences. You get better at it. You know yourself better. I don't need to be the one at the table who's telling all the stories and, and talking the loudest. Yeah. I'm happy to kind of embrace that uh, person that I am. And you are now a non-drinker. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. And you say that now as opposed to making some Yeah, I me- and I remember the first time I said it, it's like somebody offered me some wine and I said, oh, I don't drink. And I was like taken aback at the fact that I'd said it out, out loud. loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a kind of bravado attached to imbibing large amounts of alcohol and bragging about the hangover. It's sad, really. My liver is my best friend. So somebody, I have to say, having a bottle of wine six days a week can't possibly consider as a cultural norm in this country. Uh, can it? Uh, in my 30s, I probably drink every month or two. Maybe just having a few friends uh, or with dinner. Uh, all my friends will be similar. So that's it's, it's a generational thing as well. Uh, interesting conversation. I'm surrounded by a lot of people in my life, both family and friends who don't drink at all. I don't find it uh, that unusual not to drink. I have two young adults in my house. One does not drink at all. Uh, the other rarely. Uh, common in their social circle. Nobody comments. So that's... Great, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. I mean, things are definitely changing. For Um, the better. One day, you know, we won't be having, like, conversations (laughs) and writing books about the fact that somebody doesn't drink, you know? (laughs) Kate Gunn, author of The Accidental Soberista on The Ray Darcy Show. Well, yesterday we heard about the proposal to rename Porky Cueve to Supervalue Park, but the decision has since been halted after huge backlash, including from the Tornish de Michal Martin, who said he was deeply disappointed and annoyed by the proposal. And he also indicated that government may now need to change its policy when it comes to funding sports grounds, given that Porky Cueve was allocated millions in taxpayer money back in 2014. Elaine Lachlan, political editor at the Irish Examiner, joined Clare to discuss this and other government issues as the Dáil resumed today. Good morning, Claire. So was this a tongue-in-cheek suggestion um, from Micheál Martin, you know, that we might be looking at a situation where future funding for GAA stadiums may come with conditions around naming rights? Well, certainly he did seem quite annoyed and uh, concerned around the development uh, to rename Parky Cueve, obviously in his native city of Cork, um, to Supervalue Park. Now, as you said, that um, decision has been put on hold for the time being. It's not completely off the table as of yet. Um, but he did 
in pointing to his dissatisfaction around this possibility, said that the government had allocated 30 million to that stadium and the state had never asked for any naming rights around that stadium or any other stadium. Now, Mm -hmm. it has to be said that the government perhaps is slightly different than a private entity that pumps money into a sporting body um, or sporting facility that probably is expecting something uh, in exchange for that funding. Yeah, it was a, a, a pivotal moment over the course of yesterday evening when Michal Martin sent out that statement because there had been a lot of noise about it over the course of yesterday. But his statement was very strong. It certainly was. And I think you have to point back as well to last year as well, where the Thonishtha also got involved in another uh, GA controversy or scandal around the GA go. And this was where a number of games had been put effectively behind a paywall. Um, and uh, the Thonishtha again was very uh, certain in his opinion on that and, and believed that important games should be free to air. And we actually, uh, perhaps as a follow on to that, saw yesterday in Cabinet. Minister Catherine Martin bringing forward a list of 14 sporting events that are now up for discussion and out for public consultation that basically I think she believes and the government believes should be added to the list of uh, free-to-air events um, that are widely available to the public and the public should be able to enjoy free of charge. Um, So this isn't the first row that uh, Micheál Martin has got himself involved in around the GA. He obviously is a a keen GA supporter and, and of course his son plays for uh, the county of Cork. Um, But I think the GA and certainly those members who attended that meeting in Cork last night would have been very aware of the comments made by Mm -hmm. the Thánaiste going into that meeting. I'm sure. Now, uh, the Dáil is having its first session of 2024 today and the two bills to amend the constitution will be debated. Is there concern in the government about these referendums or how much weight is being placed on them? Yes, I think there's probably now two schools of thoughts around uh, those two questions that will be put to the people in March um, on International Women's Day. Um, And they obviously address the women in the home clause in the constitution and also the link between family and marriage that is in the constitution. Now, some uh, in recent weeks and months within the cabinet have been expressing concerns that there is the possibility that this referendum or the two referendums will be perhaps hijacked by groups who want to make it into something that it is not about. And we've seen already quite uh, testy exchanges when it comes to the issue of transgender and transgender rights, uh, even transgender healthcare in this country. Um, So there is a a concern there and an awareness of the possibility of this being potentially hijacked. Now, the flip side of that is uh, some people around Leinster House, both in the opposition and government, are saying that perhaps it may be a damn squib that we've seen with previous referenda that the public engagement hasn't really ramped up ahead of votes and there have been low turnouts um, in such votes um, and that perhaps that may also jeopardise the outcome because we know when there are low turnouts um, that the possibility of a referendum being passed diminishes. Mm -hmm. So there are two things that I suppose are on the minds of politicians in Leinster House. There's another issue of course facing the government, that's the hate speech bill that was supposed to be finalised before Christmas, it didn't happen at that time. So what's the delay and where does it stand today? 
Yes, and this is something that Justice Minister Helen McEntee has been pressing ahead with. Um, it got stuck in the Shannon uh, over the summer and I think a number of senators, including, it has to be said, government senators, raised concerns around this bill. Um, it was, I think there was a renewed focus put on it just before Christmas um, with around the Dublin riots and all that happened there. Um, and Minister Helen McEntee again uh, reiterated that she will be pressing to get this bill passed. Um, now, she is on a, a time frame like all ministers now. We are looking down uh, at a, an election, um, certainly within the next 12 months, but I think many in Leinster House will be saying that it'll be far sooner than that. I think mm. an autumn general election is still very much um, what most people uh, in politics believe we had Pascal, we'll ha- we'll Pascal Donoghue Elaine in the studio earlier this morning and he said he believes that the issue of immigration will be a defining theme in Ireland this year. How worried would you say the government is about how all of this is playing out now around the country? I think they're extremely concerned um, Claire and even today uh, around the doll, around Leinster houses, TDs and senators make their way back after the Christmas break. There is high security uh, cordons are going up because we're expecting two protests, uh, one either side of, of Leinster House today. Um, and we've seen before Christmas, we had uh, the arson attacks on that hotel in Galway. We had nasty scenes earlier on this week in Ross Cray. And people are, there is a, a genuine concern concern out there around the you know supports both for those coming to communities and those already living in communities uh, healthcare policing um, and even kind of the leisure facilities if private hotels are being taken over that communities will lose out on whether it's you know their the place to go for life events or even swimming pools and other leisure facilities so the government is very conscious of this now Unfortunately, it's not really uh, an issue that can be solved overnight um, because we are reliant on the private sector now and it will take a long time to roll out uh, state accommodation centres, state reception mm-hmm. centres. And I know it's, it's something that Minister uh, Roderick O'Gorman is working hard on now um, to come up with a revised white paper um, around that body of work that needs to be looked at and leads to be worked up uh, on accommodation. Elaine Lachlan, political editor at the Irish Examiner on Today with Claire Byrne. On the News at One, Brian Dobson spoke about new figures from the National Transport Authority that show a record number of people used public transport last year, with the numbers rising by almost a quarter in a year. And he was joined by CEO of the National Transport Authority, Anne Graham, to discuss. This growth that you're reporting in passenger numbers, is it across the board uh, and what's driving it? Um, I think it is generally across the board, but we probably have seen much higher increases on bus services and light rail services than we would on on heavy rail services. But we are seeing recovery post-COVID across all our public transport. But we have invested quite a significant amount in new uh, public transport services right around the country through our Connecting Ireland programme and new town bus services, um, as well as improvements in the Dublin bus 
Connects uh, network as well, where we've been increasing our um, the frequency uh, of services right across uh, Dublin City. It's a big year-on-year increase, but if we go back to the pre-COVID figures, 19, 2019, the 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 last of those uh, pre-COVID numbers, it's it's about a five percent increase on on 2019, isn't it? That's right, it's 5%. Um, and 2019 would have had high growth of about 9% on the previous year as well. So a 5% growth is very good for public transport generally. Normally you would see in and around 1%, 2% kind of matching uh, the growth mm-hmm. in the economy. So to recover uh, from COVID as well as grow by 5% on 2019 numbers is actually a really good result. and uh, is actually probably unique um, across Europe as well, where a lot of public transport operators are still recovering uh, post COVID. Is it so good though really because the population has grown by a not dissimilar figure about about 4% since 2019 so really you're running to stand still. Uh, well, I think we've gone a little bit beyond that, mm. um, Brian. So, And also you have to take into account that people's travel patterns have also changed as well. So we've more people working from home um, and hybrid working. So there's less people uh, probably commuting at peak times, but we're seeing growth in off-peak travel. So people are travelling during the day, but also in the evenings mm. uh, and Saturdays and Sundays as well. So public transport is being used for a much more, more variety of uh, trips not just commuting, which would have been the tradition of um, of most journeys, uh, I suppose, that well, you plan for. Pr- proportionately, that the same number of people are using public transport as, as was the case five years ago. And they're using it at different times of the day. So it means that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's becoming an even more efficient service um, because we can provide services uh, and we are extending our services into nighttime evening times and uh, the weekends, well, even it, in rural it, Ireland as well. Is it more efficient? People, of course, uh, talk about the, the phantom buses, uh, the ones that appear on the displays that never that never appear, uh, capacity issues, buses going by, stops because uh, they're full, passengers being, being left on, on the side of the road. Well, at, of course, at peak times, we do find that we have capacity issues and what we're doing, working with our operators, to, is to provide additional services to meet that capacity, uh, to meet that demand. So at times, yes, we, we do need to provide additional capacity um, and we are finding pinch points have, have arisen uh, since last year and we're working with operators to, to meet that demand. Um, but at the same time, we're also looking at improving the infrastructure around our public transport services as well. So we were delighted to see uh, two planning uh, permissions being received now for Bus Connect's infrastructure for Dublin. Uh, and we want to now move forward with providing, uh, you know, uh, the, the road space for mm. bus uh, walking and cycling uh, and have an even more efficient uh, and reliable public transport service. So the plan in Dublin, and there's also Bus Connect schemes for, I think, Cork and Galway, other urban centres, but in Dublin it's what, it's it's, it's 12 uh, routes on Bus Connect? That's right. 12 uh, corridors. Yeah. yeah. And at the moment you've got planning permission for, is it one? For two. For two. For two of the 12, yeah. With hopefully more coming this year. It seems pretty slow progress. Um, no, we, we obviously we would have liked to see the uh, planning progress being a little bit quicker. Um, but we are now happy to be able to progress uh, with construction uh, as soon as possible, hopefully starting in 2025. CEO of the National Transport Authority, Anne Graham, on the News at One with Brian Dobson today.
Finally, on the nine o'clock show this morning, Shea Byrne was joined by acclaimed Irish actress Fanula Flanagan, who's currently in rehearsals for Sive at the Gaiety Theatre. You've never been stuck in one particular idiom or genre. You, you'll theatre, film, TV. It's it's Emmy Award season now. Yes. And you are an Emmy winner. Y- yes. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just forgot that. <laughs> Well, yes, I do have the statuette to prove it. (laughs) (coughs) Would you like a little drink of water there? Excuse me. Rich Man, Poor Man is something that that's what you won the the Emmy for. But Rich Man, Poor Man, particularly it was shown on RTE back in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, It was huge. It was one of those big, big miniseries, Mm -hmm. huge miniseries. Roots was the other one that ran around that kind of. Era. Rich Man, Poor Man came first. It was it was modelled, as it were, on um, Upstairs, Downstairs, which was the first long form um, series oh. that was done on uh, certainly on American television. And then the uh, the original um, Rich Man, Poor Man was done. It, and a wonderful cast. Peter Strauss was was uh, one of the cast there. Peter as well. Strauss and uh, Nick Nolte. Very Nick's young Nick career, Nolte, yes. yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. Very handsome Nick Nolte and Peter Strauss, very handsome. Oh, yes, he was, and was, <laughs> is. is. And he's, he's got a peculiar, he had a peculiar face, you know, and a wonderful shock of blonde hair. <laughs> we, I watched, we, we watched the Emmys and the highlights of the Emmys and the other, it's awards season in the United States. Mm-hmm. We watched some of them. Um, a huge glamorous affair with the red carpet. What Do you remember your visit to the Emmys? Um, I actually I I do remember because the man who handed me my Emmy um, mispronounced my name, and so I thought that they should have given him lessons in how to say Fanula Flanagan, you know. But uh, then I sort of took it upon myself to say it's Fanula Flanagan, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh please! It was uh, it was funny. It was a funny evening, and um, yeah. Award ceremonies, and I think those kind of award ceremonies, probably at that time, was a great reason to get together with with friends from the the business, who all assembled on the night. Yes, well, actually, there weren't very many Irish friends at that time in, uh, certainly not in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, it prior to. Let's see, what was it? It was, uh, uh, well, he went to jail. I've forgotten his name, even though I did two pictures for him. Um, Anyway, prior to uh, Miramax, Miramax is what brought um, uh, European actors into Los Angeles to play in American films. Prior to that, you hardly ever saw uh, a European face uh, and you certainly didn't see any non-white faces in in American films, and so and even when I came along, it was very difficult. It was very very difficult to break into um, American actors. Either did film or they did TV. Nobody did both, you know, and uh, so. I was the exception if you pro- that proved the rule. But you, but you you had to break yourself into uh, oh yes in, I mean the yes theater. indeed you, you yeah. literally had to write your own play star in your own play. Yeah. 
and then make a film of it. <laughs> that's true. And that's another long story for another time. <laughs> but as I say, those career choices, you, you were, are one of the actors who do both. You do TV. Now, TV has become, because of streaming and Netflix, mm-hmm. etc., and the other streamers have become big business now. And we see film stars on TV all the time. But it was unusual to appear in a film and the next year do a TV programme. It was looked down on in some oh, ways. Oh, completely. And also, it's the long form that changed that, you know, uh, the long form of television that is much more like a movie. And so, and sometimes is, is brought out as a movie and uh, more and more so. So that changed everything. I'm getting the impression that you probably have uh, another 55 projects ready to go and scripts this high piled on the table at all. Actually, no, I don't. Um, uh, no, somebody, people send me things that uh, they say, this is a wonderful book and why don't you adopt it and adapt it into a, a project for yourself? And I said, well, why don't you? You do that. <laughs> the amount of work that is like 10 years of your life that goes into adapting a book. At least when I did James Joyce's Women, that was, it took 10 years before I could actually get it on paper and in a form that I could work with it on stage. But uh, that's what people mostly send me are tomes, huge tomes. <laughs> Worthy projects. 5,000 pages. Why don't you change this into a, a production? <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> Why don't you? Just fire it straight back at you. There's a, a little text in if you don't mind me reading it. Uh, we live in Ockram in County Wicklow, dear Fanula. She's so gifted, but also a lovely lady. And we have our tickets ready for Sive. And that's from Pete and Barry. And we grew up in Rathmines and we used to do ballroom dancing in the cricket club. <laughs> so it's the ballroom of romance as well. We've seen. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> uh, speaking of same, the, the ballroom of romance was written up in, uh, I think it was in the Independent newspaper recently, fairly recently. And the building is so sad. It stands there in the middle of literally nowhere in, uh, in Mayo, I think it is. And uh, that's where they shot it. That's right. And that's where the, the actual story takes place. Um, can, I, can I ask you, if you don't mind, and you don't have to tell, but just your, your family, are, are the, the boys, etc., the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, are you missing them? Do they come over regularly? Well, you know, I bought this house in Wicklow thinking that they would all flock here on their summer holidays, but they all tend, because they live in Los Angeles, they all tend to go to Hawaii for their holidays. <laughs> and I think... Why? I hate Hawaii. You know, how, how can you go there when there's Anakura? And uh, so anyway, they have all been here at some point. I have uh, I have three um, grand. I have four grandchildren and I have uh, five great grandchildren. Five. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the eldest is uh, Mason is 12 and uh, uh, Cove is 10. And the only one who's called after anybody in the family is little Finn, Fanula, and uh, she's just seven. Ah, and do they get to see you on the screen? Do they? Oh, they do, yes. Um, they're not a bit impressed, you know. They just think that that's the way it should be, which I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and I'll let you go in a second, because you've been very kind and you've stayed with us for a long time as well. Um, when I said that you were coming in to a friend of mine last night, he said, do you know that's Data's mother? Yes, it's true. I am Data's mom. <laughs> <You are> Data's <laughs> mom. 
<laughs> so for those who aren't star- Trekkies, this is, it's huge. I mean, the Trek, the Star Trek, an actor, and I'll sort of remain nameless, had a very small part in Star Wars, an English actor, and he has lived off going to conventions yes. for, for his entire life, yes. the odd play. And I, then- I have not done that, but I've been encouraged to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, what do I have to do? They said, you don't have to do anything. You just stand there and they all look at you. <laughs> I thought, and they'll pay me for that? That's a bit similar to being on stage, but you don't have to speak and you don't have to learn any lines. And there's a picture of Data beside you. And even the actor who played Data might even be there with oh, you. Oh, he was wonderful. He was Brent. wonderful. Brent, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a wonderful, great actor. wonderful actor, Broadway actor. He did uh, he did uh, Sundays in the Park with George. Oh, I mean, he's you know he's sometimes yeah. Is he a singer? Um, Does he yes, sing as well? Yes, he is a singer. And of course, in the in the um, uh, episode that we did, uh, one of the funny things was I don't even play the comb and. We had to. I had to play the violin, <laughs> right? And he had to play the uh, the, the the flute. Flute, yes. And so we're meant to do a duet for the members of. How they didn't la- pee themselves laughing, I don't know. <laughs> Patrick Stewart was sitting there, and I thought, surely he's peeing. And uh, so uh, the director said, "I just need you to play. I need you to play the uh, for the long shot." I said, okay, all right. And I, I just left the uh, the words aside, and I was just concentrating on learning this. I think it was the girl with the flaxen hair that uh, we played, and. So then uh, I thought, oh, my God, he's going to do the close-up now and everyone will see that I, my finger movements are all wrong and I don't know how to play the violin. And, uh, and then the door opened and in walked two, they would be called uh, challenged people, but to me they were dwarfs, two dwarfs walked yeah, little in. little people. Little people, and they were dressed exactly as we were. And the director said to me, put your hands behind your back, and I did. And so uh, the, uh, the the young woman came up and she stood behind me and she put her arms through, she dressed exactly as we were dressed, put her arms through um, where my arms were like that, and she, and she took the violin and sight unseen, she she played, you know, the violin and the similarly for Brent, you know. And so all we had to do was look passionately at each other, mother and son reunited in space, you know. <laughs> it is hysterical. It's probably the most work that they got that whole year. But, oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. People don't, and I, again, we could be here all day and I apologise, but they don't realise you've, you've been in three <laughs> three parts of Star Trek. You're playing two different characters. That's like right, I did. <laughs> Fanula Flanagan on the nine o'clock show with Shea Byrne this morning. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. <laughs> <laughs>